You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 518 of this podcast. Today is December 15th, 2022, and also a Thursday. And starting us off, I want to read for you Psalm 1, the very first psalm in the book of Psalms in the Old Testament of my Bible, your Bible, if you have a Christian Bible. We're going to read it in the ESV. And then I have several news stories I want to talk with you about in light of Psalm chapter 1. So from the top, starting in verse 1, we've got, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now here we have, from the jump, not just an abstract, in a vacuum, consideration of who God is, his character, detached from our human experience. From the jump, we do not have a God who is distant, who is the deist's clockmaker, watchmaker, who winds up the universe and then walks away, and now it's just tick, tick, ticking on its own. Here we have not an abstract union symbolic festival where everything is just psychology and metaphor, but there is no actually grounded reality. Now, this is intensely practical. You do have metaphor. Yes, you do have symbolic aspects to this passage and so much else in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yes, you do. Absolutely, you do. But what are these symbols speaking to? What are they getting at? What are they driving at? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. We're not even out of the first verse, much less the first chapter of Psalm, before you have, on the one hand, the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and by contrast, in opposition, the wicked, right? And it's not to say that the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, that this man is perfect in all that he does, that he never makes a mistake, he never errs, he's never immature, unpleasant, rude, foolish, ever, ever, ever. That's not what it means. But the idea that this man would walk not in the counsel of the wicked speaks to his aiming at something else. He is not going to the wicked who we read elsewhere are maybe wealthy, maybe blessed for a time. 
we're told to not envy their brief, temporary prosperity. We'll call it that. We're told elsewhere not to envy their wealth or their status or their power because it's fleeting, right? But the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, he is the man who is aiming at what? At meditating on God's law, on meditating on God's word. And this is, again, this is not in an abstract sense. This is not meditation, mindfulness in a therapeutic way only to where it's all about us. Is it a benefit to us? Yes, absolutely. Because the first word even is blessed. Blessed meaning that you will increase, you will profit, you will benefit. And that is a motivator. It, it is. And that's okay. It's okay for there to be a motivation that has to do with wanting things to go well for you. But the object of worship, the object of desire, the object of devotion is God. And more to the point, the conduit for understanding the character of God and for being blessed is meditating on the law of the Lord, day and night, all the time, constantly. Now, the Jungian, the psychologist who likes this, but is not necessarily ready to commit to a supernatural in the sense that a Christian would say the supernatural exists. And you could argue the point and you could say, well, what is supernature? <laughs> Everything has a nature, including the angels, including the demons, including heaven, including hell, including God. God has a nature. His nature is other than ours. The nature of the angels is other than our nature. It might have some overlap. It might have some similarities, but it's other. Is there anything that's actually above nature? Well, yes, God. If you want to get really, really narrow with it, I think you could say that the only supernatural entity in all of existence, in all of reality, must be God for the Christian. Because to be supernatural is to be above and apart from nature. And the only one who is above and apart from nature is God. Is a tiger, if I'm in the jungles of Borneo, unarmed, wearing a stake around my neck, is a tiger <laughs> supernatural? No. I mean, just because he's stronger than I am, that doesn't mean he's supernatural. The tiger has a nature. If I'm in the jungles of South America and a jaguar decides to make me a snack and takes me and that's it, that jaguar is not supernatural. That jaguar has a nature. Well, so also angels and demons, in a certain sense, they're not supernatural. They have a nature and it even if their nature is to have more strength or knowledge or power or authority or insight into the inner workings of the universe, then I do as a man or you do as a human. They're not necessarily, strictly speaking, supernatural. So then what are we rejecting if we reject the supernatural? If everything has to be a metaphor, it all has to be put in exclusively emotional terms 
And then we say, well, there's a benefit to talking as if these things are real because they're archetypes and they're types. And these metaphors, in order to really have their potency, we have to talk as though we believe them and as close as possible to us believing them. But we don't actually believe in super nature. It's all an internal reality. And even our relationships with one another, it's all an internal reality. And these are just mechanisms that we activate. Well, okay, but those mechanisms have to come from somewhere. They have to come from someone. Those are a part of our nature. Yes, we have maybe what you could call mechanical responses sometimes, but then sometimes mechanical things break. And so sometimes the response of a mechanical thing that we design doesn't produce the expected results because the material cracked or ruptured or broke down, got disconnected somehow. It could not withstand the energy that was being directed towards it in the place that that energy was being directed towards it. And yet, even with that metaphor, if you will, we're talking in terms of things being designed, intentionally created, not happening by random chance. And so I think here of Jordan Peterson, and I like Jordan Peterson. I do. I appreciate his courage and his insight and his clarity on so, so many things. But he likes to take every Bible story and make it into pure symbol. And even as he's talking about these people, he's not talking about them like real people. He's talking about them like types of people. And yes, they can be types of people or they can represent types of people, but really only meaningfully if they are actual people. God can't just be a type. In order to be God, he has to be actually set apart. But if we just say we believe in God, but what we really mean is a kind of mechanism in our own brains that we call God to get benefits, then what is that? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is intensely practical, but yet it cannot only be practical. It cannot just be, well, I see these problems in people's relationships, and so I want to help. And I, I wonder sometimes if that isn't what it is for Jordan Peterson, for instance, not to pick on him, but he is a very, very public figure. And I should very much like it if he ever stumbled across my podcast for him to hear my thinking through some of these things related to what he's doing or where his thought process is, what his attitude is towards God's word. I should very much like it if there were something helpful in how I'm organizing this information. But even if he doesn't listen, which is highly probable, I don't expect that he's going to tune in and listen to my podcast here. Other people do. Everybody knows Jordan Peterson's reputation, his name. They've seen or heard something. They've read something either by him or about him. And for those people, there are basically just two opinions. There's the one opinion that he is an alt-right pseudo-intellectual, normalizing the folks who hide in the shadows, who are on the wrong side of history, normalizing their thought processes, their biases, their attitudes. He's a villain. And on the other hand, you have the folk who say, he's got some really good things to say. And if you drill down 
among those who say he's got some really good things to contribute to the conversation right now. He's being very courageous. We admire that. On the one hand, you have those who have been steeped in their whole lives. They've been brainwashed in a competing religion, a competing cosmology, a competing worldview, a competing social imaginary. If they came up through the public schools, even if they were raised in the church or ostensibly Christian homes, they were not taught that the Bible is literally true, particularly with regards to Genesis and origins and where we come from. And therefore, they believe that life on earth has been around for millions and billions of years, maybe. The universe is extraordinarily old and that maybe if there is a God, more than just a psychological projection of something important that is going on just in our brains in a chemical way, in electrochemical ways, if there is a God, well, then he must have used evolutionary processes to bring about all of this biodiversity and even the existence of man in many cases. Not everyone holds to that. By the way, there are multitudinous views. Some say all of the rest of creation, all of the rest of the biodiversity we see, God brought about by evolutionary means. But man, man, he took special attention with. And that's true on some level, regardless whether you're a young earth creationist or a day age theorist or a theistic evolutionist or a gap theorist. God did take special attention with man, but not in necessarily the way that those who cling to evolutionary thinking suppose. And yet, with regards to Jordan Peterson, there are a lot of folks who, holding to that view, they read him and they see him talking about Bible stories. There's even a series on Daily Wire Plus, which I would like to get to soon, about Exodus, where he's talking through what happened with Exodus. But so much of it is being harvested for psychological and therapeutic benefit. And it's so highly symbolic that one has to what one has to ask, one has to wonder, do we suppose that these people really existed? More to the point, do we believe that God not only exists, but that he has revealed himself in his word? Now, that's where the blessing is here in Psalm 1, 1 through 6. Not just in supposing that a God exists. You can say, well, that's useful to start, sure, but even the demons believe and shudder. You believe in one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What benefit is that? Well, okay, I believe that some of the things that are written in the Bible are true about God. They have to be true about God, but we can't possibly understand what they mean. But here's where we get into the second half of the first verse of the first psalm, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, what is that about? You don't sit in the seat of scoffers. What that really is about is those who would scoff at God's law, the law of Yahweh, those who would scoff at it and say, well, that's totally impractical. That's totally unrealistic. That's not fair. That's not right. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if we can possibly understand what that means. That's not for today. That's not still applicable. The ones who would mock you 
and try and drive you from the public square, ridiculing you, destroying your confidence in your own ability to form thoughts or reach meaningful conclusions. The folks who would try to convince everyone else that you're either crazy or dangerous or both if you meditate on the law of Yahweh or if your delight is in the law of Yahweh. Those folks are the scoffers. They are. They are the scoffers. They scoff. I mean, it. There, there literally is a sound that scoffers will make if they are undisciplined, if they lack self-control. <sighs> what does that sound like? That sounds like scoffing. That is the sound of scoffing. But sometimes it takes the form of more gradually, carefully, precisely developed and unpacked arguments, long-form arguments about how it couldn't possibly mean this at face value and also what I want it to mean. So therefore, I prefer my own interpretation because it allows me to have this respectability. No, no, you don't have to stand in the way of sinners. You don't have to sit in the seat of scoffers. You don't have to walk in the counsel of the wicked. In fact, you will be blessed if you don't. More to the point, it's an either or. You either do that with regards to the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, taking your cues from them, or you delight in the law of Yahweh and you meditate on it day and night. And then we get into, yeah, sure, fine, symbolism, metaphors. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, in all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So here we have a very, very simple, very elemental, very easy to understand word picture of you like a tree planted by streams of water. It's not thirsty. It's not going to wither. When it's time for the fruit of that tree to be ripe and to be picked and to be enjoyed and to be eaten, to be made into delicious food, not only will the tree of your life be fruitful, but it'll be abundantly so. Because, again, you are fully hydrated. <laughs> In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. And this is to say, increasingly, you know, as we get more and more into the weeds with the woke business and CRT and gender theory and what is at its root, Marxism, communism, by another name, call it whatever you like, but communism, as we get more into the weeds with that, what you will find is the truth of verse four is what feeds into the persecution of the man being described in verse three. The wicked are not so. Not how? Well, for one thing, they're not like a tree planted by streams of water. So they get very, very dry spiritually. They get very cynical. They get very fearful. They get very unproductive because they refuse to invest themselves anywhere that might potentially risk what they want out of life. They do wither and they do not yield fruit. Not good fruit anyways. The man whose delight is in the law of Yahweh. Why? Because the law is from Yahweh. He doesn't just delight in law in an abstract way. 
Oh, I just like order. Well, yes, but order from whom and predicated on what? That's critically important. That you have to figure out. It's not enough to just desire to know God in an abstract sense or to like the idea of God, more to the point, as is more often the case, versus those who hate even the idea of God. They get irate at even the mention of God. In all that he does, he prospers. The one who meditates on God's law day and night, in all that he does, he prospers. Why? Because the law was given, not just to prove that you're a screw-up and you're a sinner and you need Jesus. No, no. The law was also given to teach you to relate rightly to God and to one another. You want to have good relationships? Hey, here's some things to not do to each other. Here's some things to do to each other. You want to have a good relationship with God? Here's how he desires to be worshipped. Here's how he wants you to be stewarding the breath of life that he's put in your lungs. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not so. In other words, the wicked do not prosper in all that they do. And if we're in a communistic frame of mind, politically, socially, increasingly, we've got very wealthy people who by turn are ambitious or fearful. And so they're going along with this, they're actively helping to implement this. They may be prosperous in a sense. Don't envy them. Don't wish you could be just like them. Don't wish all that could be yours. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. One of the things I'm really struck by as we are in the Christmas season, and as I was doing some research to talk with our youth group last night about the nativity and the historical context of the nativity, one thing I'm really struck by is 2000 BC, thereabouts, God makes this covenant with first Abraham and then thereafter Isaac and then thereafter Jacob, three generations of men that God makes this covenant with. And then subsequent, even after that, he makes this covenant applicable and then reinforces it in subsequent generations of his people, the children of Israel. Who is Israel? Jacob. Who is Jacob? Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson. God makes this covenant about 2000 BC, about 1200 BC. God sends Moses and Aaron and then plagues on the Egyptians, but brings Israel out of Egypt to take them into the promised land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They grumble, they complain, they want to murder God's servants those who trust in God. Why? Because they don't want what God wants for them. They don't want the blessings. They don't want to trust in God. They want to go back to Egypt. This is not metaphor. It's not symbolic. It's not just a psychological construct. These were real people who really acted this way, just like people really act this way right now. And this was a real God who is over nature, apart from nature, but who is the designer of nature and who by all means can enter into our history and our lives any moment, any instant he so chooses. And he always, he's always ruling and reigning over our lives. But then the children of Israel, after 40 years in the desert, eliminates the whole generation that grumbled against Yahweh in the desert. God brings them into the land of Israel and then what? You have prophets and priests 
and judges and kings, and some of them do a very fine job serving the Lord, following the Lord, calling the people back to serving the Lord, back to repentance. Others of them, to say mixed bag is an understatement. And God continually is warning Israel, if you keep on playing the harlot, worshiping the gods of the nations around you, if you keep on prostituting yourself, even though you belong to me, prostituting yourself to the gods of the nations around you, I'm going to give you over to them and they will be very unkind and very harsh with you. And Israel does not listen to this as a pap- as a people, as a nation, as a chosen people, as a chosen nation. Israel does not listen to this, but keeps on both Judah, the Northern kingdom, Israel, the Southern kingdom to keep on. And so what does God do? He keeps his word He gives them over to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Both Assyrians and Babylonians subsequently fall to the Persians. The Persians fall to Alexander the Great. And you've got the Seleucids after the Ptolemies ruling the Jews. You've got a brief window of self-rule followed by civil war, followed by Roman conquest. You've got a man in Herod who pulls some strings And he is named king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. He is not in any way, shape, or form that would be familiar to the Jews who have studied Torah, who have studied the law of the Lord. He's not in any way familiar to them, the rightful king of the Jews. But Rome says he is because Rome can count on Herod to do Rome's bidding, to protect their interests in the region. That's how that works. Well, here's how it also works with regards to God. That God declared David as the replacement for Saul. Why? Because David is a man after God's own heart. Because David, imperfect though he absolutely was, wants to pursue and embrace and promote God's interest in Israel. And this is why Jesus is born in the line of David as a better David, as a better king. Symbolically, sure. Is there a lot of rich meaning that we can harvest for our lives in, if you will, a psychological way? Because psychology is just, it's just the science of the soul. Some people practice it very, very badly in our day because they foolishly have said in their hearts, there is no God. But even those who say in their hearts, I believe there is a God, but who or what he is, I can't possibly say. Okay, maybe you're a little less foolish, but a lot of why you're prospering, I'm sorry, a lot of why you're prospering is because insofar as you deny that God really truly exists, as his word says he exists, insofar as you deny that, You maybe, perhaps, possibly, if I dare say, stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers, walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, the curious thing is, you take Jordan Peterson, for instance, and I'm going to play a clip here just in a minute from him, but you take Jordan Peterson, for instance, he rose to public attention, fame, notoriety for some, infamy for others, 
because he refused as a professor, as a longtime clinical psychologist, therapist, he refused to go along with this new set of laws that said, you must, in Canada, you must use someone's preferred pronouns or else. You could be fined. You could be jailed. He said, no, I've studied totalitarianism. This is it. I'm not doing that. This is authoritarian, totalitarian, tyrannical. No. And then lots of people, I think, expected that if they put him on the spot, if they challenged him, they could make him look like the fool here. They could dig up some dirt. They could make him look like the fool. They could make an example of him. And they didn't quite know who they were dealing with because he's extraordinarily bright. He's extraordinarily smart. He's got a great verbal ability and he's disciplined when it comes to his responses, his answers, his counterpoints, his counter arguments, the questions he asks. And then lo and behold, oh, he wrote this book. Oh, he's going to go on a speaking tour. Oh, he is going to start his own podcast. And more and more people want to interview him. More and more people want to ask entrapping questions. Again, speaking of symbolism, types, metaphors, et cetera, et cetera, he is, in some sense, a good example of the game that the Pharisees were playing with Jesus. Only in this case, he is playing something like the role that Jesus plays in the Gospels, where he is seen as a threat to the status quo, upsetting apple carts, challenging conventional wisdom as it's come to be among the establishment, among the self-appointed guardians of truth and justice who are themselves corrupt and hypocrites play acting. They don't actually believe these things wholeheartedly. They just act like they do because there's money in it. There's street cred to be gained. He turns the entrapping questions back on those who are trying to trip him up or make him look foolish and ends up looking better than ever. And I really, I have high hopes for Jordan Peterson because I do, I I love and adore him and his contributions. And I admire greatly and respect greatly what it is that he's saying in so many regards. But the main thing, the really, really critical, non-negotiable thing is that our delight would be in the law of the Lord. And on his law, we meditate day and night, not because we love law and order in an abstract way, but because God is the lawgiver. And I don't know, maybe I'm being too critical, maybe I'm being too hard on Jordan Peterson, but I do think there's a bit of a trade that we need to be very careful to not make, where we trade getting this small concession, this small mercy of someone like Jordan Peterson, not scoffing at the Bible, but saying it has to be true, at least in this regard. We trade that mercy as it seems like a cup of cool water on a hot day, we trade that for subordinating our view of God's word to the sinners, the scoffers, the wicked. We we must not, we must not do that in any way, shape, or form. Don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of the scoffers. Whether you're walking, whether you're standing, whether you're sitting, whether you're lying down, whatever position you're in, (laughs) don't go with the wicked sinners and scoffers. Just don't. Just briefly, we're going to go through some headlines, some news items, very, very quick. And then, like I said, I'm going to play a little bit of Jordan Peterson for you because he's got 
a uh, an important thing to say in response to a question of social credit systems. He's asked a question by Sky News, and I want you to hear how he answers this question. But real close to home here, as someone who lives in Greeley, Colorado, I occasionally read the Denver Post, and there's an article from Seth Clayman, published December 9th, 12.42 p.m., updated 5.41 p.m., if you're curious. It didn't quite, quite make it to five hours in the public view before they had to correct something. Key federal permit issued for $2 billion Northern Colorado Reservoir Project. Fort Collins and some local groups opposed the project to create two new reservoirs. I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version. We need more water. And there's been a plan in the works for a long, long time to create two new reservoirs to that end. Environmentalists don't like the idea and are not satisfied by, and I'll read this quote for you, Northern Waters General Manager Brad Wind. And I quote, this action is the culmination of nearly 20 years of study, project design, and refinement to develop water resources well into the 21st century. This project will also allow participating communities to serve their customers without targeting water now used on the region's farms. That sounds great, right? 20 years, that's a long time to be studying this. You need to be able to give water to your communities as people are moving into the area. I mean, all of the folks, all of the folks who are here and moved here, they stay here, they don't move somewhere else, they don't live somewhere else, they presumably want to keep having water, right? So either A, if they really don't think we should expand access to water, they should move somewhere else, or B, if they themselves want water and food, that's another thing too. If we need agriculture, this is one of the most fertile parts of the country, Weld County, Colorado, if they want food and water, they should either move somewhere else if they oppose this measure that's going to expand our capacity to provide those for people who live in the area, including but not limited to them. They should either move somewhere else if they oppose this, vote with their feet, in which case, you know, then it's no longer any of their business. <laughs> uh, or they need to change their mind. They, they, just, they just need to. Uh, this is, I think, of a piece with larger attitudes towards the earth, a kind of pantheism where we regard the creation as our creator. We start getting into some weird neo-paganism. This is of a piece with being given over to a reprobate mind, in my opinion, not that there's no place for environmentalism or conservationism. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I guarantee if you drill down on this particular story, you will find some radical environmentalist and anti-human sentiment. And that can't be catered to. It just can't. It's not genuine. It's not sensible. It is scoffing. It is wicked. We were told to fulfill a dominion mandate, fill the earth and subdue it, to take dominion of it, not for it to take dominion of us. And just like with the question of abortion, you know, all these people who want the right to abort babies, you know, I've, I've noticed that all of them were born and they're all here, right? So they'll say, if a man is pro-life, I notice that you're not a woman. 
And the correct response for the pro-life folks, for the abolitionists, abortion abolitionists, should be to say, I noticed you were born. So turn that right around. All the radical anti-human environmentalist folk, I notice that they're still here. They haven't, you know, ended it all for themselves, but yet they're increasingly comfortable with reasoning in the direction of eliminating other human life, supposedly for the planet's sake, supposedly because we need to heal planet Earth by getting rid of ourselves. And yet they're still here. They could start with themselves, but of course, none of them want to start with themselves. And this is where it's just, it's just wickedness. It's folly. It is a reprobate mind. It's unreasonable. Moving on another story here. This one from not to be from yesterday. Daniel Payne highlights a piece at the New York times, the former newspaper as, as Andrew Clavin would say, uh, The New York Times is trying to normalize husbands and wives living apart together. Please, married couples, don't do this. That's the headline. And here's the title. There's a screen share from Twitter. Thank you again, Daniel Payne and not the B for posting such things to where I, even though I'm not on Twitter myself, I can still see what's on Twitter. The public square. The wife left, but they're still together. That's the New York Times headline. The story here is basically that a miss, I don't know why they call her miss when it really should be Mrs. Mrs. Ordway, Miss Ordway and Mr. Ordway, 58 and 62 years old, having two children aged 17 and 14, have decided that they're going to live 20 minutes away from each other in separate houses in separate towns. They decided this in July of 2021, 17 months into the pandemic. They decided that they're going to live apart because one of their children maybe would do better going to school in a rural setting instead of where they were living. So Mr. Ordway is living in one place. Miss Ordway, as they call her, is living in another place. And this is going to be normal. This is going to be normalized. This is going to be presented like this is very rational. This is unwise. I mean, they still talk. They still get together every now and then. You know, they'll visit each other in each other's homes. They'll call each other. But they are not living like husband and wife. And what's that about? Anything goes if you throw out God's word, the promises and the blessings and the prohibitions, the commands, the teachings, the authority of scripture, which is by extension, God's authority in your life to tell you how you then should live or walk or orient yourself. This is, it's kind of an in-between have your cake and eat it too with getting divorced as I see it. Now, if they're not technically divorced, um, can I just point out normalizing this is a bad idea, and it's it's a peace with it's a bad idea like open marriage. Basically, you are abolishing your marriage, whatever you want to call your new arrangement. You're abolishing your marriage. You're being 
unfaithful in a sense. Now, we say unfaithful, and very often all we think, all we mean is, oh, if somebody has an emotional affair with somebody who's not their husband or their wife, somebody who has a, you know, physical affair, they are physically unfaithful and they start getting very intimate with somebody who is not their spouse. That's what we think being unfaithful is. And I would say very often we don't have a broad enough view of what unfaithfulness is. Unfaithfulness can also look like this, even if they're being totally celibate when they're apart. You move 20 minutes apart from your spouse. How are you being faithful? I mean, you're, you're, let's put it a different way. You could say, well, they're not being unfaithful. Well, yeah, but are they being faithful, right? Are we wanting some kind of a third category, a special category in which there's a neutrality? The laws of God don't apply to where we can just do whatever we want. We call it this third thing, this fourth thing, and then we think we're being very original. This is not an original thing. Now, there are times, there are circumstances in which maybe a husband and a wife, they've got conflict, something traumatic happened, and they're separated, and that actually can help them to work through some things. But the big idea should not be you normalize the separation, and then you say, ah, this is every bit as legitimate. In fact, we're happier than ever. It's better than ever. It's hardness of heart. That's what that is. That's a hardness of heart. That's a rejection of God's authority, first and foremost, a rejection very often for women. It's typically women who filed for divorce uh, in the United States of America today. It is typically women. I mean, like overwhelmingly women. And what is that? Very often that is also women rejecting the authority of their husbands because by extension also they've rejected God's authority. You also have men rejecting God's authority with regards to how they love and lead their wives. Whatever we want to call it, there's an unfaithfulness. Go to Malachi, the prophet in the Old Testament. When Malachi in chapter 2 talks about unfaithfulness and God being a witness of it, you you can lie to everybody else. You can even print it in the New York Times, which is like the penultimate way to lie in United States of America in the year 2022, God knows, God knows Malachi two, starting in 13. And this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of Yahweh with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. Yet you ask why it is because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have broken faith though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Has not Yahweh made them one, having a portion of the spirit? And why one? Because he seeks godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. It's very, very important to God that we be faithful to the wife of our youth as men. So also, obviously, it's very important to God that the wife of our youth be faithful to us. God does not regard this as separate, distinct from, off to the side, relative worship of him. He sees these things as absolutely joined at the hip. In fact, one of the things we read, and this is not what the whole episode is about, I promise, but one of the things we read about 
as a motivator for husbands to love their wives and live with them in an understanding way is that their prayers won't be hindered. Old Testament, New Testament, there's no change in what God was saying with regards to husbands and wives and faithfulness and marriage, that your prayers might not be hindered. In other words, you don't live with your wife in an understanding way. You're harsh with her. You're cruel. You're overbearing. You're negligent. God might just tune you out. He might just ignore you. He might just reject your offering. He might just tune out when you're praying to him and asking for things. Maybe start with loving the wife of your youth, being faithful to her. Then come back and let's talk. This is just like when you are offering an offering to the Lord and you remember that your brother has ought against you. That is to say, you've sinned against your brother. God says, through the gospel account of Jesus teaching, correcting misunderstandings, misunderstandings that were traditional, that were rabbinical regarding the law of Moses. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, etc., etc. Leave your offering on the altar. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Make it right. Restore him if you've harmed him, damaged him, sinned against him. Reconcile with your brother. Then come back and resume. How much more so when it's your wife? How much more so? Moving on. Scarlett Johansson claims she was groomed for bombshell roles early on. She's been an actress for a long, long time since she was quite young. Now she's 38, just a little bit older than I am. She says that she was hypersexualized. She was trotted out as a object from early on. She uses the term groomed. And I would say this is also an extension of what's going on with marriage. We rationalize for generations in this country, rationalize the degradation of marriage, rejecting basically what Malachi 2 says, where God speaks through the prophet Malachi about judgment, about worship, and about marriage, and about having children. We reject that, and thereafter, even with a minor, you know, this actress we know of as Black Widow and other characters, at one point she was someone's daughter being raised, where was her father? Where was her mother? What was their attitude towards their daughter? What did they prioritize? What did they value as more important than anything else in what they taught her, what they told her, what they exposed her to, who she was entrusted to or given over to? I mean, essentially, you can look at the trend in Hollywood, and I would say the music industry as well. See also the fashion industry advertising. <clears throat> what do they say? What what do all of the above say? They all say sex sells. Sex sells. That is the phrase. Two word, very short, very pithy. We all know it. Nobody questions it. Nobody doubts it for a moment. Sex sells. You know what we call it also when sex sells? Prostitution. So in some sense, what you have in these Beautiful, and they are. They are beautiful young actresses, singers, models who are trotted out for not just a little bit, not just recently. This isn't a recent phenomenon, but for decades, increasingly explicitly to sell movies, music, products, clothes, ideas via sex. Is that not another way of saying we're prostituting them? And if that's what we see 
publicly that they are trotted out in a very sexualized way. Not just that they're, they're being beautiful is prostitution. I'm not saying that. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But if we are sexualizing them, we are trying to use them to incite lust, which will then confuse and muddy our thinking and our judgment and our rational faculties as we buy, as we believe, as we vote, as we join, as we participate. Well, where are the fathers? Where are the mothers? And did this come from an increasing trend to reject God's authority, to reject the institution of marriage? What else do you think you're going to get? What else, what, what else do you expect is going to happen? The wicked are not so. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's law day and night, whose delight is in it. He prospers in all that he does, Psalm 1 says. The wicked are not so. And I'm sorry, but there's this tendency now, too, with young women— when they start getting older and they start not feeling quite as beautiful and they start not being maybe the leading thing to then go back and act like they were the victim. I'm sorry, but you you were in a sense, but you were, you were also probably exploiting this right up until the moment there was more benefit, there was more gain to be had in saying that you were just brainwashed. Now, could you have a human trafficking kind of a situation here? Well, there are. There are young women who go to Hollywood. They're trying to get their big break in modeling or in being an actress. And they are literally turned into slaves. They are literally, they don't turn up on the cover of a magazine or on the big screen or in a TV show. They end up literally being given drugs and alcohol and made into prostitutes, into slaves, for someone else to make money off of them. Could some of them be winding up on the big screen, even though they are still slaves? Sure. It's a disturbing, disturbing thought, but it should give us pause when it comes to how much we're taken in by these images. More needs to be said in a future episode on this subject. I really, really do have a lot more to say than I have time for in this episode, but I do want you to consider this as a real-world human cost for rejecting, ignoring the promises of Psalm chapter 1. For instance, for example, for starters. Also, too, closer to home, Greeley-Evans School District 6 Board of Education meeting stopped twice, adjourns early due to disruptions during public comment. What were these disruptions? Concerned parents, local citizens, bringing in hundreds of forms that had been filled out, objecting to books that are in the local libraries here, promoting, allegedly, normalizing, allegedly, all manner of sexual perversion, and even rape, incest, bestiality. This is not literature. And, and I'll tell you this, and this is something else I want to expand on in a future episode when I have more time. My oldest son's intro to lit class, some of the things that the teacher thought it necessary for them to get into towards the end of studying literature, they remind me of why I became very disillusioned with community college myself 16 plus years ago, 17 years ago. Higher education in general, but community college in particular, if it's free, isn't really, there's a cost of time, energy, attention, and if they're feeding you junk, well, then what's that? But speaking of junk, 
one of the school board members actually called these papers trash, called for an adjournment so we can clean up this trash. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There was an uproar from, for obvious reasons, the people who had brought in these forms objecting to these books. And she says, oh, I, I meant I meant papers. We don't, we don't want people to step on them and trip over them and slide and slip and all that and fall. What was I just saying about, and this is why we homeschool, buy my book, and this is why we homeschool. Let me make the case. Let me try to persuade you. If not through that story here close to home with Greeley Evans School District, consider Cardinal Pritchard at Not the Bee and his story from yesterday. Middle school teacher forced to resign after refusing to call students by their preferred pronouns. This is the same kind of a thing that got Jordan Peterson in hot water, but then also he didn't back down, and that's why we know his name. He wasn't just a casualty thrown into the tomb of the unknown soldier of the woke wars. A teacher in Ohio, more to the point, more specifically, Massillon, Ohio, not too far south of Akron, farther north than we used to live in Hillsboro. This middle school teacher was fired, and she has filed a lawsuit. I hope she wins also, along with Cardinal Pritchard. But you can't just leave your kids in there in the meantime. I know I know the most transgressive thing I can say these days is you need to get your kids out of the public school. Don't trans the kids. Climate change is real, but it's not man-made, and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, I know those are very transgressive things for me to say, but all the more reason— that some of us feel that way, would I say we need to get our kids out of the public schools, homeschool them, teach them at home, teach them to have good character. And they're not getting that. We're, they're getting exactly the opposite. They're getting a satanic education in the public schools. No two ways about it. Briefly, Peter Heck over at Not The Bee, he's got a story highlighted here. Gay-friendly restaurant refuses to serve Christians. What happened to Bake the Cake? Bigot. Uh, exactly right. And who will weep for them? Who will mourn for these Christians who weren't allowed to eat at that restaurant, uh, who are being discouraged, who are being told, you're not welcome here? Nobody. Jordan Peterson, though, before I completely run out of time, let me share with you some audio here. Uh, we've got an interview that he sat down for with Sky News Australia. He's asked an important question with regards to social credit scores like China has. Take a listen to what he has to say. Do you think what we did during COVID could usher in our version of a social credit system? Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's and that high, it would, highly probable. And that it will be accepted by many people because, again, that they won't even yearning notice. for safety. No, they won't notice even. Yeah, you, you can't believe how much people don't know these things. When I went to the UK, I talked to some people from the House of Lords. This is within the last six months. The most astute of the people sitting in the House of Lords had only become aware of the woke movement in the last 18 months. Oh, yes, you, you just can't believe how much this is not on people's radar. Not Someone like you can't believe that at all because it's on your radar all the time. That's not You live in a world that's on the cutting edge of this sort of thing. It's like... People have no idea. It's like, well, why not have a digital passport? I mean, you know, how convenient. It's like, fair enough, and you can understand that. Wouldn't it be nice if we could pay for everything with our phones? It's like, wouldn't it be nice if the central government who's woke-oriented and 
makes carbon dioxide remediation the priority, knows exactly what you spend on everything so they can target you tax-wise with precision. It's like, oh, didn't think about that. It's like, yeah, yeah, you sure didn't. And, oh, yes, it's highly probable. It'll be a miracle if we, if we escape from that. You can see these signs of this everywhere. You know, when you go through airports now, there's a lot of automated barriers. You show your passport. It's like, well, these are automated barriers. What if you can't go through them? Well, that's the situation for many people in China. It's like, what are you going to do? You're going to argue with the machine? Like, you just cannot imagine how screwed you are. There isn't, it's way worse than anything Kafka ever imagined. Because at least with Kafka, there was bureaucrats, faceless though they may have been, they were at least still human. Once the machines can lock you out, you are in such trouble. And we're speeding towards that with... uh, with an immense lack of, of care. And of course he's right. And of course, that's, that's correct. It is a correct analysis that this is so much easier to imagine right now than it would have been three, four, five years ago for more and more people. But then there are still people who have not been paying attention and They don't know how close we are. They don't know how turnkey this could be, how many little shark bumps have been tried in even the past several months, the past year, which lead up to something that is being beta tested, if you will. You know, initially automation was rolled out as cost savings, higher output, higher production lower costs, let's optimize, let's remove the potential for human error when it comes to assembly lines or heavy equipment or motor vehicles or building safety. Let's make it easier to make the right choices. That's how it's traditionally been thought of. And then you always have these dystopian thinkers who warn about the unintended consequences for early adopters, also the potential for bad actors to get a hold of things that were designed for one application and now they're going to be used in a very different application. What we might suppose possible, really boiling down to what we believe is in the heart of man, whether we believe that man is fundamentally good, basically good, that the bad apples are few and far between, typically not even of their own choice. It's not even their own fault. They weren't given a good education. They didn't have a good upbringing. They had trauma. We make excuses. They make excuses. And then next thing you know, you have more and more because we don't run out of excuses. Once we start making excuses on the presupposition that man is inherently good, It's hard to stop because then you start making excuses for making excuses. And where does it end? Well, simply, we've seen the answer to that. We've seen it throughout recorded history, throughout human history. We know that where it ends, even just in the 20th century, several places where a vacuum was created with regards to Christian morality What replaced Christian morality was not no morality. It was not 
man's inherent goodness. It was ambition, lust, pride, malice, envy, cruelty. And when the shoe was on the other foot, no mercy, no grace, no forgiveness, no repentance, none asked for and none given where quarter is concerned. And we see even in our own day, if we are willing to look at it, we see this building, we see this rising in the United States of America. We see it in other countries which are being normalized in the interest of the global community, in the interest of combating climate change or having world peace. Rare exceptions, sure, they do exist. There are rare exceptions, but they're fleeting because all it takes is someone coming out and saying, the reason this or that regime is repressive, totalitarian, hostile to basic fundamental human rights is because ostensibly Christian Western nations taught them to be that way. You see, they didn't get a good education. They had a hard upbringing. They had trauma in that culture, and that trauma turned into cruelty and dysfunction. And it always ends up coming back to blaming Christian civilization. Now, I'm not saying that everything that's purported to be Christian civilization has been good, honorable, praiseworthy, just, fair, decent, true. But what I will say is, if you look at the failures of Christian civilization, can you look at those failures and see even in them proof that man is not fundamentally good, not inherently good, that man, for one, needs God. Far from being proof that God is the cause of all of our problems, I would say what we find again and again is that man is the cause of his own problems, the chief cause of his own misery, and that God provides the solution to those who seek him, who call on his name again and again. We need grace. We need mercy. We need forgiveness. We need protection. We need provision. We need blessings from heaven. We need wisdom. We need to know what is right. We need to know what is true. We appeal to heaven, and then solutions start to present themselves. But when the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and combines that with prosperity for a time, a unceasing, unquenchable thirst for more power, more capacity, things like automation, which are just things, are leveraged more and more to deal with solving what godless men see as the problem. You know, the narrative for many dystopian novels is that the scientists, you know, for the most part, they meant well. They just were a little naive. They didn't keep their head on a swivel. They got tunnel vision on the fun of their discoveries, innovations, breakthroughs. Typically, too, in the modern era, you also have profit motive. You have the big businessman who only wants to make money, and he's just sure, we've got this. We've got to power through objections. But the machine becomes self-aware. The machine sees humanity as the actual problem to solve. The machine decides the safest way to eliminate human error is to eliminate the humans. Now, what if there's another possibility? And the other possibility is 
the machines don't become self-aware. Man actually sicks the machines on his fellow man to become godlike, to become imperial, to become impotent, ultimately, really, truly, but omnipotent, as he tells himself. And supposing that starts to fall apart, despairing of life itself, the higher he climbs and the more bleak the prospect that he will win out, the higher the odds that he will just self-terminate. But, you know, what is it that we find about egotists and those who are selfish and greedy and incapable of considering other people, their value, their worth in God's eyes, incapable of hearing God tell us how to treat with one another, very rarely do they only take themselves out. If they despair of life itself, maybe before they take themselves out, they see how many others they can take out because there's a monument. And you know what? They can probably find fault with the people they want to destroy. They can find reasons, excuses, justifications. Those folks over there, they did this thing, so they have it coming. These people said such and such, and that's not true, and they are life unworthy of life. We saw this again and again in the 20th century, and it was not an excess of Christianity or Christian civilization. It was the repudiation of Christian civilization, Christian theology, first and foremost, and then subsequently Christian philosophy, Christian ethic, Christian morality, Christian self-government, first and foremost, and then subsequently Christian stewardship of governing authority over others. Now, I think, again, Jordan Peterson, he's being clear-headed about where we find ourselves, what we're getting into, but so also, isn't that curious that some of these figures like Peterson, like Shapiro, like other conservative commentators, like Elon Musk, for that matter, like Donald Trump, who are being the boldest, are closer to prophetic voices than many of the leading luminaries of evangelical Christianity. Now, to that, someone might say, ah, yes, but they too, they too have selfish ambition to contend with. They too have the desire to be known, to be famous, to sell books, to tour, to be important. And this is their expression of that as they crusade against, as they tilt at windmills regarding wokeness. All the while missing very often the gospel message, the real servants of God, the true servants, God's people, God's children, they seek peace, they pursue it, they do what they do quietly, secretly, at the localist of levels. That's the prophetic work today. And there is some truth to that, yes, but also there is truth to the caution that we not allow ourselves to be taken captive by vain and human philosophy, but rather we take captive every thought for Christ. As it seems to me, so much of what we choose to paint, portray, characterize, describe, explain as the left taking academia, taking culture, taking the media, taking government and social media as well, 
seizing this, seizing that, doing this, doing that. They take what we give up. They take what we abdicate, what we discard, what we abandon, and then they run with it. Not in every individual instance. You do have individuals who are driven out. But we ought not to allow all of the above, even when we are the individual driven out, without so much as a objection, warning even. Why not a bold warning for the sake of those who do these evil things? Repent, not for my sake. Repent for your sake if you sin against me. Repent for your sake. You destroy yourself. I'm concerned for you. Keep your gifts, keep your trinkets, keep your bribes, your threats, but I'm concerned for your soul. And truth be told, that will make them even more hostile in some cases. But consider this, if you will. Think with me for a moment about how, let's say, homosexuals, transgendered persons have argued that Christians need to be silenced where their negative characterizations of the lifestyle of the LGBTQ folk is concerned. Why? Because speech is violence, because it's going to encourage violent attacks. It starts out as negative characterizations, but it will lead to violent attacks, physical violence. And because it will lead to physical violence, someone somewhere is going to do physical violence against a lesbian, a gay man, a transgendered man or woman. Therefore, for you to say the thing is the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater. Now, let's not debate whether it is or it isn't. I mean, it isn't. I don't need to debate, but let's not debate that for the moment. Let's just say, let's just say, let's just recognize, let's just admit that for us to be accused of that as Christians, that if we object to the morality or lack thereof of lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transgendered people, that that is violence against them or it will lead to violence against them. Let's just ask the question about what that tells us of the perspective of the left, the attitude of homosexuals, bisexuals, transgendered people, and how such an attitude, how such a perception of the chronological sequence of sentiment leading to physical actions might inform what's next in the sequence when they start speaking a certain way towards Christians, about Christians. They start angrily denouncing those who say, I believe the Bible. I believe that the Bible is correct. When we start to be the ones mocked, marginalized. Now, what I'm not doing here is I'm not trying to turn this around and say, to quote, you too, you do it also. So therefore, it's okay. And also what I'm not trying to do is say that I accept their premise with regards to where Christians are coming from and where Christians are headed to in a buildup of making a case, making a claim, then taking action. But what I am saying is if they see the sequence 
like so, does that mean that that's the buildup, that's the sequence? When their rhetoric is fully charged, that's where it will go next with regards to Christians in particular. Not just, not just, but in particular. You know, there's this curious case of the guy who was in charge at Twitter until very recently of content moderation who was recently fired because it turns out he was censoring left and right. Also, not just censoring, but responsible for very one-sided partisan censorship in the interest of safety and public trust, censoring conservatives again and again, even the duly elected president of the United States, as he was currently president at the time, saying privately, offline, we'll make it fit. It doesn't have to fit any community standard. We'll just make it fit. We'll make it adhere to some rule. We'll find one to slip it into to justify what we want to do because we hate this guy. We want him gone. He wasn't just doing it to big names you recognize. He was also setting a tone so that such would be done to folks like you and me. And where this goes next, it doesn't stop with character assassination. It doesn't stop with accusations, marginalization, ugly names. It starts with the ugly names, and then it builds up to a crescendo if you've said in your heart, there is no God. At a certain point, language fails. And if your position is not reasonable and it can't be defended with reason, when you are asked for reasons, you will be even more and more angry when your reasons fail to satisfy because they're not true. They're not connected to a transcendent objective standard of goodness, praiseworthiness. And one of two things needs to happen at that point. Either A, if you find that you have just become blinded by your own anger, your own spite, your own frustration at not getting your way, not getting what you wanted, someone opposing you, someone disagreeing with you, contradicting you, you can either A, set about to destroying them, which we see, we've seen quite a lot of that, and we have to recognize it as not just something we turn the cheek to, but as something that we have a responsibility to call for repentance of and to maintain separation from as sin, as wickedness, as evil. That tendency is satanic. But if it's all metaphor, if it's all symbolic, if it's all just union archetypes that we accept but also reject by turn, what we deem to be useful to the extent that we deem it to be necessary, we accept it and embrace it. But the rest we say, eh, it's optional. Well, then I would say that so long as that's our posture, we will keep building to this crescendo. We will keep building and building into this crescendo. You know, I want to say a word or two about this idea of telling people no. And just briefly, just ever so briefly, in my experience, my observation, the people who have the hardest time saying no are folks who are either hoping to trade favors. I affirm your vices. You affirm my vices. I scratch your back. You scratch my back. I look the other way when you misbehave. You look the other way when I misbehave. We'll be great friends. That's one form that it takes. Or the other. I look the other way to the extent that you misbehave, because the more and more you misbehave, 
the more unsure I am what you might do to me if I objected, if I opposed you, if I resisted you, especially if you're strong and ruthless. And we are dealing with some very strong, ruthless people who I don't think have a limit, except their own ultimate self-destruction or God's judgment, whichever comes first. In the first category, you have accomplices who are complicit and corrupt. In the second category, you have folks to be treated gently with, but to be pitied. No doubt, they're afraid. They're oppressed. They live in that day in, day out. And that is a sad way to live. Jesus says at one point, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And what's their answer? Their their answer is defiant, proud, intentionally missing the point because they don't like what he's driving at. They regard it as opposed to what they want. They say, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say we will be set free? Well, because they didn't recognize themselves as slaves to their own sin, slaves to the sins of others. When Jesus talks about whom the son sets free is free indeed, that is a wonderful, wonderful promise. That's a fantastic, phenomenal promise. Now, it doesn't mean we're set free to be ugly to people and then say, ah, yes, but I am God's child, and so therefore, grace, grace. But for you, there is no grace. For me, there is grace. So you can't criticize me. You can't disagree. You can't rebuke me. No, no, no. And freedom in Christ does not mean you give in to the temptation to affirm what is evil, to reject what is good, and then you sin thereby that grace might abound all the more. The truth will set you free, Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then he continues, verse 35, John 8, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So he goes right to it, not beating around the bush. Initially, he's being circuitous. It's a word I like. He's coming at the problem in a roundabout way, warming them up to it, getting their attention. They see where he's going. They think, but they are proud, proud men, and they don't want to be corrected. And so he gets more blunt. He gets rather more blunt. You want to kill me. I know. I know you do. And that makes you slaves to your own sin. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And you know what? That's a sad state of affairs. If it's just you, you're hurting. Now, if it's others, you're hurting as well. Well, then it's not just sad. It's also extraordinarily frustrating and even angering. All for what? Pride? All for what? Self-justification? Self-righteousness? You're play-acting at virtue. You're not about virtue. You're about yourself. If you were really about virtue, when you err, when you sin, when you are wrong, you would thank the one who corrects you. You would thank the one who gives you an opportunity to repent, to turn away from your sins, to be made right with God, to be made right with those you've sinned against. That's what we're called to. That's what God wants for us. But God doesn't force that on us. There's an or else. And the or else is what we're seeing culturally right now. We're seeing it in businesses. We're seeing it in the halls of power. Yes, we are seeing it in schools. Yes, we are seeing it in the media. Yes, we are seeing it in your town, in your neighborhood, 
in your own home. And it's no new thing under the sun. And yet, we can't just say that either. We can't just say, well, this is the way it's always been. This is since the beginning. Just shrug. No. In your particular context, when your children are hungry, provided you have children, you don't say to them, I fed you yesterday. You're always hungry. You're hungry every day. That's enough. Shrug. No, no. When it's Monday and you have a job to go to, if you want to keep that job, you don't shrug and say, oh, you know, I went to work last week. Your employer will say, I paid you last week. Do you want to get paid this week? You got to come to work this week. And the one who loves God and the one who loves wisdom and the one who loves life, really, desires to have a long life, <laughs> is going to say, thank you, Lord, that I have this blessed opportunity to do good works that you've prepared for me from before the founding of the world. A few thoughts, just a couple brief highlights, a couple things to point out. Do consider Psalm 1 in our context. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Who are you listening to? Nor stands in the way of sinners. You know what? Don't be there. Don't hang out with those people. Don't make them your associates. Don't make them your close compadres till you become like them nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You know what? Don't just mock, dismiss, scoff at, shrug when it comes to goodness, truth, beauty. Delight in the law of Yahweh and on his law meditate day and night. You want to have a blessed life? That's the way. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous. In all that he does, the righteous prospers. Also to don't so psychologize God's word that you have a form of godliness, but you deny its power. I say this with grave concern, not to nitpick, not to be critical. I say this with grave concern for Jordan Peterson and several others of these folk who are seeing what's going on, and they're like, man, this is just awful. This is terrible. This is bad. We've got to stop it. Well, you know what? First, get the plank out of your own eye. Do you have a form of godliness, but deny its power? I'm not saying you're doing a worse job than many Christians, so-called, supposedly self-identifying anyway. But lots of people self-identify as lots of things these days, and they aren't all necessarily. These guys in John 8 were self-identifying as sons of Abraham. And Jesus' response was, if I may paraphrase the sentiment that I read in his response, that's cute. <laughs> oh, you're sons of Abraham. Nice. Nice. You know what? Let's talk about you being sons of Abraham. <laughs> really, truly, I, I, I do want to encourage. I, I want to encourage. I don't want to just be talking doom and gloom and sadness and leave you with that. I want to encourage you. Tell the righteous it will go well with them. That's not in Isaiah for no reason. Rather, we have to hold these two things in our hands at the same time that God will provide for and protect and make all things work to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and he knows who they are. We may not always. We may not always. We do well to remember that. Like I'm always talking with my Calvinistic friends, who I love dearly, even when I am not sure I agree with them in some of the particulars, some of the fine points of theology. I love them dearly. I appreciate them. I benefit from their conviction their encouragement, their steadiness. 
But like I'm always talking with my Calvinistic friends with regards to predestination, I don't know how it works. I believe that it works. I don't know how it works. I trust that God knows who he has forechosen, foreknown. I trust that he knows how that works. God knows. God is not deceived by hypocrites. We see that in Jesus. We see that in the prophets, Old Testament, New Testament. God is not deceived by hypocrites who pretend at virtue, who play act. That's what hypocrite actually means, is play acting. You're an actress. You're an actor. And God is slow to anger. He's not short-tempered. He's not impulsive. He doesn't make bad, rash judgments. He gives us every opportunity to repent, I believe. He gives us the time. He gives us the chances. He gives us the warnings. And if we keep on going anyways, because first and foremost, we sin against him. We're at war with him. We're rebels against the true and rightful king. And if that takes expression in sinning against one another and not repenting of it, not turning away from it, not confessing it, not asking forgiveness, not asking for grace, not asking for mercy, keeping on making a habit of it, justifying it, affirming it when others do it, well then, we destroy ourselves. Woe to the wicked, Isaiah 3.11. It shall be ill with him. This is a direct parallel to the preceding verse. Tell the righteous that it shall be well with them. Verse 11 and verse 10 are two sides of the same coin, not at all in conflict with one another, not at all at odds. Verse 11, woe to the wicked, as in, I feel bad for you. I feel really bad for you. You destroy yourself, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. In other words, when the righteous see it go well with them, they're rewarded. Verses, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him, regarding the wicked. This is exactly the same sentiment when Jesus says, do unto others as you would have it done unto you, or as you judge others, so shall you be judged. The wicked dig a pit and fall into it. They snare, they trap, hoping to catch an innocent person unawares, rob them, murder them, torture them, and they fall into their own trap. But tell the righteous that it will go well with them. Our perseverance, it cannot just be an emotional state. It cannot just be a psychological condition. It's practical. It's pragmatic. It's lived out. Or else what is that? What kind of faith is that? James would ask. What kind of faith is that? That's not faith. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe that. So what? And also, might I just add, with regards to mercy and justice and walking humbly with our God, these things are not at all at odds. They are not mutually exclusive. You don't just pick one. You don't just pick your favorite. You don't just pick the one you're best at. You don't just pick the one that people most approve of right now in our cultural moment. God calls us to all of them at the same time. Micah 6, 80 has shown you a man what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God all at the same time? <clears throat> you can do justice and love mercy. You know, I was listening to Stephen Crowder, and he was talking in his latest episode that I was listening to this morning while I was working. He was talking about pedophiles, like, for instance, the folks controlling content moderation over at Twitter, who were not protecting children who were being victimized online, and also who write scholarly papers and tweets about how underage teenage boys should be legally allowed to get on apps 
for romantic relationships with gay men, adult men. Now, that should be normalized. I won't even get into some of the other stuff Stephen Crowder was talking through because it's dark, dark, perverse, corrupt stuff. It's shameful even to mention some of the things and even just to talk about them. And I think, by the way, Stephen Crowder, if you're listening, I think you go too far. I think you need to just look at whether you maybe potentially have some planks in your own eye here with regards to your discussion of content sometimes. I am one to talk, but that is just it. I'm just saying that I am one to talk. Planks and specs here. I'm not saying that Yol Roth, for instance, the content moderator over at Twitter who was recently fired, the gay man who was promoting pederasty, uh, also responsible for deplatforming the president of the United States of America. What an arrogant son of a gun. I'm not saying that guy's got specks in his eye. No, no. He's a degenerate. He's a reprobate. But we should not engage in coarse jesting. And I think your show would be stronger if you didn't do that. Stephen Crowder. I think it would be stronger. I think it would be better. I think your audience would be the better for it. I think you could be very, very funny without the coarse jesting. But on the flip side, maybe we're reaching for language with regards to the pederasts, the folks trying to normalize pedophilia, molesting our children. Maybe we are reaching for strong language too much instead of just doing what needs to be done. And what I mean by that is get your kids out of the public schools, be willing to take your lumps, make them do the thing that unmasks them for the villains that they are. Make them show themselves. Draw them out. And you know what? I would love to see Christians who meditate on God's word, like Psalm 1 talks about, run for office as public servants. I would love to see that. And I would love to see more Christians who meditate on God's law, like Psalm 1 talks about, commenting on current events, particularly in their local sphere, particularly in a very practical way, in a very rubber-meets-the-road sort of a way. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I would love to see more of it. Do justice. Do justice to the topic. Do justice to the question at hand, the issue at hand, the person who is being accused or stands condemned. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. But I got to run. I really do. I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. More on this and related topics. Hopefully tomorrow, knock on wood, I just finished up a big project for work, which means that I don't have to rush off out to the field first thing tomorrow morning. Should be able, I should be able to get a little bit of podcast recording in in the morning, which is great. For right now, I got to run though. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.